Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, the auto strike, it is on in a big way. Uh, all the UAW striking all three big uh, Detroit automakers at the same time. And that is the subject of our big take story today. You know, Matt, Matt and I love the big take stories because these reporters go deep uh, on some really big topics. Uh, today, we've got a UAW's bid to upend the auto world. We, with begins with a snub of Bill Ford. Joining us is Keith Naughton. He covers um, uh, the auto industry along with uh, David Welch, uh, Gabrielle Coppola, and Josh Idelson. All out in Detroit doing a great job on this big take story. Hey, Keith, what's interesting to me, at least, is the fact that the UAW is striking all three Detroit automakers simultaneously. They haven't done that before, have they? Yeah, that is a first. Um, but they're taking it in small bites. Uh, rather than shutting down all of the factories of the big three, they targeted one factory at each company and have threatened to widen that strike if they don't get an agreement. Well, I just, I mean, Keith, you cover Ford especially closely, obviously the yeah. entire industry. But um, as far as I understood it, the unions have the best relationship with the Ford Motor Company because they like, you know, the idea of a family owned operation. Uh, Ford also didn't take a bailout um, during during the great financial crisis. And Bill Ford gets personally involved with union leaders. Right. So is it. Um, especially fascinating that they have really snubbed him and he seems frustrated. Yeah, that's a really uh, keen observation, Matt, because uh, Ford and Bill Ford in particular, going back to when he first joined the company in 1979, has been involved in every single labor negotiation since then. You know, he's a guy who grew up playing hockey with union workers. So he has kind of, I know it sounds odd, but he has a very good rapport with the rank and file from his hockey playing, to be honest. And what happened here is he took what Ford says was their best offer ever to the union, 20% raises, a re restoration of cost of living adjustments, you know, five weeks vacation, uh, 19 personal days, all sorts of uh, goodies. He took it personally to the bargaining table last Tuesday, and he was greeted at the door by UAW uh, Vice President Chuck Browning, who said, Sean Fain is not here. The UAW president mm. is not here. Bill Ford's like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Keith. And, uh, 
Keith, that's what, crazy. Bill Ford. I know the scion of I know. you know the Henry Ford family is well. There. That kind of that kind of goes to my next question. What do we know about this UAW president Sean Fain? He seems to really kind of be grabbing the spotlight here. And he's not in jail. Yes, at, like, the, like, like the last last two union leaders, right? <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, that and that's you know that explains the rise of Sean Fain, this kind of uh, fiery leader. He was the reform candidate who narrowly defeated you know, the, the incumbent candidate who was from that traditional group, which had, you know, two previous presidents go to jail for, for corruption, misusing union fun, funds on their own lavish lifestyles. Uh, Fain is, you know, really a true believer. And I'm not sure the auto executives fully understood that when he first was elected back in March. And um, he sees this as much more than just an auto contract. He sees this as class warfare, balancing the scales of 40 years of kind of the wealthy class, uh, you know, winning over on the middle class. And so he's on a crusade. And um, and that that attitude is something that the auto companies haven't dealt with before. They've dealt with pragmatists who, you know, when it came down to it, were able to horse trade and get a deal done. It makes sense because I mean, I don't want to sound like a bleeding heart liberal, but the <laughs> CEOs used to get 30 to 40 times what the guy on the factory floor got. And now it's more like 200 times. Right. And you say wealthy class versus middle class. What middle class? <laughs> Are auto workers yeah. really the middle class anymore? I don't think that's how they feel. Um, and then, you know, their demands look outrageous because they throw in four day work week and defined benefit pensions, which, you know, none of us is going to get that anymore. But the, uh, the, the wage increases look to be okay and aren't going to bankrupt these companies, are they? Well, I mean, these are big wage increases. Uh, Stellantis upped their offer over the weekend to 21%, but the union is asking for 36%. Um, so there's a pretty wide gulf. And, and just one point on those defined benefit pensions. You're right, Matt, none of us get those anymore. But the point that Sean Fain makes is the CEOs do. Wow, uh, that's a good point. That's, that's interesting. Good, yeah. I did not know that. Well, yeah. they also get like twenty to thirty million dollars a year. Yeah, so that's nice. Right. You could argue they, right. and you know, I bet they, they should give up those pensions pension. just as a show of you know solidarity with the factory floor. I'm... Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, so no, they probably won't get the defined benefit pension back. But Fain's trying to make a point. Yep. All right, as we go into, the, I guess, the second week here, I, I don't know, I can't, can't keep track. Keith, what's the feeling in Detroit about how this thing plays out? Because that's, that's a Today's big— Today's day four, by the way, day four. Of day Detroit. four, okay. A big bid-ask difference between the union and the companies. What's the feeling in, in Detroit, how this might play out? Well, um, first off, there's a lot of support in Detroit for these strikers. Uh, one of the striking plants is here in suburban Detroit, not far from where I'm sitting right now. Um, so they got a lot of honkers, a lot of support. You know, there's a Gallup poll out that shows that 75% of America is on the UAW side in this dispute. So this is labor's moment, man. You know, they're, they're in ascendance. There's this feeling that, uh, you know, in the pandemic, uh, they were getting left behind and there's nervousness about AI and all sorts of things that could replace jobs. So, so they have support and, um, it seems like the, the companies are going to have to try and meet them. Uh, farther than they have in a halfway battle. I, they have actually met them halfway because the union asked for 40% initially and the companies have offered 20, but they're going to have to go farther. 
I was going to ask about Brampton, Ontario, and the Canadian Union. And because, but I just got your, an email from Dodge. Challenge? My vehicle has been built. Nice. Yeah, uh, um, I mean, in Canada, if you care, uh, Unifor. Matt is cares. Also neg- <laughs> Unifor is the union up there, and uh, they're also negotiating a contract. Um, but they're doing it in the traditional way, way where you pick one company and set a pattern there and then take it to the other two. That's the way it's always been done. They're doing that up in Canada, and the company they have targeted is Ford. Ooh, okay. Again, uh, Matt, to your point that, that Ford tends to, you know, uh, have a better relationship with the union and, and you know, have been able to reach agreements with them through the years. There has not been a national strike at Ford since 1976. Ooh, okay. All right. Good. We'll keep that in mind. But here in the U.S., it looks very contentious here. Keith Naughton, thanks so much for joining us. Keith Naughton uh, covers uh, Detroit uh, for Bloomberg News and all the auto guys. He's out there. Uh, and he is one of the authors of the Big Take story today. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome now our Bloomberg TV and radio audiences. Today, we are focused on oil as Brent nears $95 a barrel. No better guest to discuss that with than Mike Worth, Chevron chairman and CEO, joins us now. Mike, it's such a pleasure to see you. Thanks for joining. Alex, it's good to be here. Okay, $100 oil, is that going to happen? Sure looks like it. We're certainly moving in that direction. Uh, the uh, momentum, uh, you know, supply is tightening. Inventories are, are drawing. These things happen gradually you can see it building and so i think the uh you know the the trends would suggest that we're 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 certainly on our way we're getting close mike good morning it's guy in london what impact do you think 100 bucks a barrel will have on the u.s economy what impact will it have on the global economy well certainly those are higher prices than uh you know we, we tend to see out over the long term and so i think it will have uh, some effect on the economy, but you know we, we've had relatively higher oil prices here now for for most of this year and certainly all of last year. The recession that everyone's been talking about hasn't arrived, and uh, and so I think the underlying 
uh, drivers of the economy in the U.S. And, and frankly, globally, remain pretty healthy. So uh, I think it's a drag on the economy, but uh, uh, one that thus far I think the economy has been able to, to tolerate. Do you, have you adjusted your price deck? <laughs> Meaning, that's my question, being like, are these higher prices sustainable for the long term? Yeah, we, we take a very long-term view on supply, demand, policy, technology. We haven't changed our long-term price, mm -hmm. uh, but we, we really don't change that very often and, and not in response to what our short-term... We, we've been in a volatile market really going back to the pandemic when things came down, the recovery, when it was high, the war. Uh, so th this has been a, a period of time where prices have been unpredictable yep. and, and volatile and not what you would call mid-cycle. Mike, if, if I worked for you, if I worked for Mike Worth and I worked for Chevron, would this be my cue to say, Mike, can I have a pay rise, please? Well, we're, we're certainly seeing, I think you're making reference to what's going on in, in different parts of the world. We're seeing organized labor, uh, you know, in uh, many different industries now, uh, kind of assertively uh, step forward and say, look, we, uh, we want to be compensated. We see the inflation in the economy. And uh, we've seen companies recover. We've uh, uh, had a very strong pay program last year for our employees. We try to stay very competitive, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I would expect we'll continue to do so. That is Guy's way of getting into the strike action that's happening in Australia with Gorgon and Wheatstone. So, so far, cargos have not yet been impacted. You're using some non-union workers, right? Is there a point where that would change? Well, we certainly hope that uh, what we'll see is uh, a negotiated agreement. Uh, others in Australia have reached agreement with these okay. unions. We've been at the table bargaining in good faith, and, uh, and that's our desired outcome. That said, uh, when we face potential strikes anywhere in the world, we have to prepare to maintain operations. Uh, our products are vital to the global economy and the flow of those commodities, particularly LNG, in a world, as we've seen last year, where it's important to uh, uh, keep economies going, not just in the region, in Australasia, but also in Europe. Uh, that's our responsibility. And so we do prepare to maintain operations even during an industrial action. Um, and, and thus far, we've been able to successfully do so in Australia. Do you think if I'm sitting here in Europe, I should worry about what's happening here? Is this going to be a problem when we get to winter, do you think, Mike? Well, last winter, Europe came through better than I think most thought, Guy. Now, inventories were high going into the winter because Russian gas had been flowing in. Uh, industrial demand really came off, and then it was a relatively mild winter. We certainly can't count on all of those things happening again, but gas inventories in Europe are pretty, pretty strong right now relative to history. And so I would say Europe is set up uh, much better than it was last year. Uh, the weather is always difficult to predict, but uh, I, I feel like Europe is in, uh, in about as good a place as it could hope to be uh, at this point in time. That's one of the weird things about looking at China growth, because obviously Europe wants China growth, but the energy sector probably doesn't want China growth if you're in Europe because of the, the demand pull. Are you, what, what are you noticing in China, whether it's LNG or oil demand pull? Well, it's been gradual. It's been slower than people expected it mm -hmm. to be, but it, it is coming back. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen crude oil prices tightening. Is, is that inventory restocking, do you think, or is that end user demand? It's always a little bit hard to tell. The data okay. out of China isn't exactly uh, as transparent as it is in, in other parts of the world, but I think it's probably uh, indicative of an economy that is, is finding some traction and is, is moving forward. Uh, we're going to see record oil demand this year all-time record demand, right up a couple million barrels a day versus the prior year. It'll grow again in, in the year ahead. And so uh, as long as the global economy stays relatively healthy, demand for these products uh, steadily marches forward. Mike, uh, you, you've mentioned inflation a couple of times already in the conversation. Are you still seeing inflation 
Are you starting to see deflation in certain areas? What does the cost side of the equation look like? Yeah, so we've certainly planned for inflation. The, what we're experiencing is consistent with how we laid out our budgets uh, for this year. I wouldn't say we're seeing deflation uh, anywhere in a meaningful way. We may be seeing disinflation, right? So uh, a reduction in the rate of inflation. And it yep. tends to be isolated uh, to certain parts of our supply chain, certain geographies a little bit more than something you would describe as widespread. I think wage pressure is, is pretty broadly distributed. Other things in our supply chains uh, tend to be focused in areas where there's a lot of activity like West Texas and, and the Permian Basin, which has seen a little more pressure than some other parts of the world. Yeah, so to that point, can you increase, if you take U.S. shale for a second, the Permian, can you increase productivity enough to offset those costs when a lot of your spending in the next, say, 10 years will be in U.S. shale? That is the big question right now that we're, we're confronting as we're putting our plans together going forward. Uh, thus far, that has been the case. And in fact, productivity at a time when we saw lower inflation was marching forward much faster than, than costs were, which is why we saw cost of production coming down. I think those are coming into more of a balance today. And I think the, uh, the forward view, uh, the question is, can you continue to move up that productivity uh, ramp and uh, offset inflation or not? I think it's early to say. The one thing that is uh, sometimes not talked about in this discussion, we've seen a lot of productivity gains on, on drilling and completions. Uh, we're still only recovering about 10% of the molecules that are mm -hmm. in place. If we can improve recoveries, uh, that changes the entire economic equation in a very profound way. We're working hard on that. We expect to see recoveries improve over time. So it's another leg of that equation, which is not necessarily uh, productivity on the activity, but it is on the recovery in the so economic equation. What is that? Is that three-plus mile laterals? Is it going to be just different types of enhanced oil recovery? Like, what's the super, super magic sauce for yeah, you? Yeah, we're working on a lot of different things. We're certainly drilling You're not longer. Tell me. We're drilling longer <laughs> laterals. We're working on different completion mm -hmm. technology to create different fracture geometry so you can get more flow. Does that all cost more money, though, to do, too? It does. And mm -hmm. so that's why you, you've got to evaluate the economics of this. We're working on uh, chemicals that can enhance recovery in terms of the, the, the interaction right down at a molecular level. Uh, and all these things, you have, to, you have to pilot them in a lab, you have to pilot them in the field, you have to understand if you can scale them up and if they make economic sense. That's been the history of our industry. The technology tends to solve these things. We've got a lot of smart people in our company and in this industry, and uh, a lot of incentive when you know where those molecules are to figure out how to get them to flow in a way that's economic. I, I said to Alex this morning, Mike, that, that she wasn't allowed to use any technical jargon. I think you guys just about skirted around what? it no, in that part we of the conversation. <laughs> you were fine. You were fine. You get a pass on that one. Mike, you, you talk about the fact that you've got lots of smart people. Do you have lots of smart lawyers? Um, one of the things that Alex and I were kicking around before we spoke to you this morning was what is happening with this California case and the fact that increasingly it looks like climate change is going to be litigated. Is litigation the right way of dealing with this? In a word, no, it's not. Uh, look, this is one of many such actions that, uh, that we've seen over the years. Ironically, um, a number of them uh, on, filed on behalf of people who have actually profited from and encouraged energy development. Uh, climate change is a global issue. It calls for a coordinated global policy response, not piecemeal litigation that benefits attorneys and, uh, and politicians. So. Uh, we, we, will, we do have uh, smart lawyers. We will deal with the, the, the lawsuits. But more importantly, uh, we're working on finding ways to meet today's energy demand with energy that has less carbon intensity and still is affordable and reliable for the economy, 
even as we're investing in new technologies like renewable mm -hmm. fuels and, and hydrogen and carbon capture to build a new energy system over time that is inherently yep. lower carbon. That's a constructive approach. That's where we're engaged. That's where most of my attention is focused. Okay, so to this point, you guys are going to become majority owner in what could be the world's largest hydrogen production and storage facility. There's that. You do have a huge carbon capture facility next to Gorgon in, in Australia, right. etc. These things are huge and they're expensive and some have been around for a while. Hydrogen though is new. How do you know how much CapEx to realistically allocate before you're like, this is too big and it's a money suck. How do you see this playing out? Well, it requires a lot of judgment. Uh, you have to spend time, you have to really select. There are many opportunities out there. There's a yeah, lot so of- Yeah, so hydrogen, for example? There are a lot of places you could invest in hydrogen. Mm -hmm. You can invest in blue hydrogen, you can invest in green hydrogen. There's different carbon intensities, there's different technology pathways. Uh, we've got an entire organization that spends all its time working on the technical, the commercial, uh, the practical engineering realities of these things and looks to find the best places to start. Uh, certainly in the U.S., we've seen uh, some policy through the uh, IRA, which creates incentives. Those aren't intended to last forever, but they can help prime the pump as we bring the technology costs down. The project you referenced uh, is a project in Utah, which is actually very economic today. Uh, we'll take uh, surplus renewable power that comes from primarily from wind in the western U.S., and when it's more than the grid uh, needs, which happens during certain times of the day, we can use that to convert water into hydrogen. We'll store the hydrogen in underground caverns, and then at other times of the day when you want to bring that power back, we can bring the hydrogen out of the caverns. It can be put into a gas-fired power plant along with natural gas to produce lower carbon electricity. So it's an example of something that's technically feasible. The economics and the contract terms on it give us a return on our investment, and it's a platform from which we can then grow. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Welcome now, our Bloomberg radio and television audiences to a fantastic conversation with Ola Halinus. He is the Mercedes-Benz CEO. He joins us in New York, as does, of course, Bloomberg's Matt Miller. Ola, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed for taking some time to drop by and see us here at Bloomberg. Ola, the story we've been talking about over the last few days has been all about China. We're trying to work out whether Europe is going to start a fire with China that is going to impact Mercedes-Benz. There's talk of tariffs. There's talk of trade wars around autos and EVs. Are you worried? Well, it's great to be with you this morning, Guy. Uh, no, we're not fundamentally worried. We have a very strong business in China that has grown significantly over the last uh, 10 years. And we're continuing to invest in China. Uh, to make sure that we bring the product that the Chinese customers are expecting for us, from us. Uh, I think it's important uh, in these types of discussions to not forget what has made uh, uh, us so successful over the last decades. It's been opening up markets, free trade, free competition, but also a level playing field. So as long as uh, all of those uh, frameworks are in place to make sure that we can do business in a sensible way, uh, we're not worried. Well, we have, though, Ola, um, an EU inquiry into Chinese car imports. Don't you expect Beijing to react with countermeasures? Uh, we will see how, how this plays out and uh, what comes out of that. And we like to remind people that uh, 
Uh, open markets is what drives growth and also drives wealth creation. In fact, if you look at the history of our company, it didn't take Gottlieb Daimler more than 15 years to figure out um, that Germany is not uh, the only attractive market in the world, and we've been here in the United States for more than 120 years now. So that companies go global and that competition goes global, I think that's natural. We had the Japanese come to the United States in the 80s and the 90s, then the Koreans, then Tesla came now when yep. uh, we're going into electrification. So let's keep markets open and let the market participants yep. fight it out. Um, Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, was speaking to our good friend and colleague, Amory Hordern, a little bit earlier on, Ola. She was saying that there's a risk that Europe is too exposed to China, that we need to be cautious in our approach to China. Do you think that European German luxury car makers are, though, at risk of being overexposed to China, that that market has become too big for you and that politics could get in the way? How do you think about it when you get warnings like that from German ministers? On the one hand, I think we learned a thing in the pandemic that supply chains can be fragile. And to create some optionality and more resilience into your supply chains is generally a good thing for businesses. This is something that we have already started, especially on battery materials, uh, where we have devised a strategy where we're going to try to, as best as we can over the next years, go into a kind of region for region sourcing. So yes, we do look at different commodities to make sure that our supply chain is resilient. But it would be uh, a complete illusion to think that we can divide the world, the automotive world, into uh, individual regions that have nothing to do with each other. These supply chains or supply networks, rather, are much too sophisticated. There are five continents in every Mercedes that is being sold. And that is the yep. uh, strength of market economy, that the invisible hand of the market figures out what the economic optimum is. So supply chain resilience, yes. But keeping the markets open and the market working, I think, is even more important. You have uh, a strike going on here in the U.S. Well, not you. Um, the UAW is striking on Ford, GM, and Stellantis. Um, you have production here in the U.S. It doesn't have UAW workers, but you still got to be prepared for supply chain issues due to the strike. What, what are you expecting now, and how do you expect it to affect your business? Uh, we don't expect any uh, major impact on our business. And of course, Mercedes-Benz doing business in more than 150 countries and have operations in all major economic regions. We try to make sure that we're competitive, that we're an attractive employer. But at the same time, we're in transformation. The auto industry is getting more competitive, not less competitive. So yep. whatever pressures we have on cost is going to have to be made up in productivity. So I think we have to be very mindful to keep the gain on productivity up uh, and make sure that we uh, 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 don't have costs that run out of control. But don't you expect, Ola, if, um, if they get a 20 25% increase at UAW plants, you're going to have to raise your price, your, your pay at some point in Tuscaloosa as well. Otherwise, you're going to lose workers to plants up north. Uh, we have been in the uh, United States, uh, uh, in the southeast of the United States with our plant in Alabama and also our commercial van operation in uh, South Carolina now for, uh, in Alabama, more than 25 years, almost 30 years. And we have always kept lockstep with what's going on in the economy to make sure that we have attractive yep. jobs. 
So uh, we, we, we watch that and we make adjustments as, as we go along. Uh, but at the same time, we look at, you know, how can we do things better? How can we do uh, work in a smarter way, get leaner? Uh, because the uh, cost competition is not going to go anywhere. Ola, do you think that companies such as yourself, companies, companies like Stellantis and Ford, should be guaranteeing that workers that are working on combustion engines will have a place in the new EV world? Should they be guaranteed jobs? Should they be carried through this transition process? I cannot speak for other automakers, but if I look at what's happening at Mercedes-Benz around the world, and primarily in, in Germany, where we have most of our operations, yes, we're investing heavily into the new technologies. The lion's share of our capital allocation goes into electrification and digitalization, and we're creating new jobs there. But the fact of the matter on the powertrain side of things, the net-net at the end of this transition, which, which is a 10-year-plus affair, is going to be less jobs on powertrain. On vehicle assembly, it's, it's, it's about the same. But we will use demography over this 10-year-plus uh, uh, period, our demographics, to make sure that we can get into a position where we do this in a sensible way. Ola, I drove recently the EQS. Um, it's an electric, uh, your electric SUV. Obviously, a very luxurious product as you move even more upscale. Um, at the same time, the Tesla Model X and Model S are getting kind of long in the tooth. If you have lost customers to Elon Musk, are you gaining them back with this new uh, push into you know, luxury electrics? What we have seen with the EQS and the EQE, both on the sedans and the SUVs, and here you have some uh, extremely high-tech, luxurious products. Uh, we didn't make carbon copies of our combustion equivalents, but really tried to create a complementary offering. And yes, we have a lot of Conquest co um, uh, customers coming into those vehicles. People that maybe didn't look at Mercedes before that goes like, wow, Mercedes is going electric. This is interesting for me. So, so far, that plan is working out quite well. Matt, I have to say, you've got a big smile on your face. You look like you're enjoying driving that car. Is it as good as a nice engine? Are you, are you a convert yet? I've been tracking Matt's history as he's worked his way through this process. You know what? I'm wondering this, if we're there yet. This is the one electric vehicle that, that may be able to win me over because of the pedal feel, because of, I hate to say it, uh, I don't want to get flamed, but the fake sound, which I absolutely loved, it really felt like a big block more than an EV. And Ola, are you going for that? I mean, um, are you trying to make these electric vehicles feel like, you know, the, the luxury uh, V8s that, we're so, that we long for? Of course, there's a different sound profile, but the way a car drives and rides, you know, what you expect from a Mercedes, the safety, the quality, uh, how everything just feels right. That is true for an electric vehicle as it is for a combustion vehicle. But for you, Matt, I got a special coming up next year. I know you're a big fan of the G-Wagon, the G-Class, and next year we're going to have an electric G. It's going to blow you away, promise. I am okay. absolutely looking forward to that. Um, as you know, I that's have the, had the V8 version, so I'll see what the EV that's, version that, is like. That's, that's, th 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 this is a high bar we're talking about here, Ola, so I, I hope you know what you're doing here. That's a big promise for Matt. Um, final quick question. Champagne sales are beginning to falter. Luxury goods companies uh, like Richemont are talking about the idea that even upper-end consumers are begin beginning to feel the inflationary effects. Is that going to be a challenge for you as well? Are you in that kind of bracket? Are you going to be affected by those same forces? 
Our top-end vehicle sales for the first six months of this year were very strong. But at the same time, you have to watch uh, the macro picture. In North America and in Europe, we have higher interest rates. Those higher interest rates are probably going to stick around for a while. Uh, that affects uh, the pricing of capital goods in terms of financing and leasing, and that's about 50% of our transactions. So we have taken a cautious view on the macroeconomic side. That is why we have guided for vehicle sales at around the same level this year as last year. Ola, great to see you. Thanks for stopping by to see us. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Is our government going to shut down at the end of the month? we got to keep that on the front burner, kids. Nathan Dean, senior policy analyst at the US for covering the U.S. government for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based down in Washington, D.C. He is my go-to person for all things D.C., for better or worse. Nathan, where are we now on the discussions among lawmakers about keeping this government open or maybe not? Yeah, so just over the weekend, you know, the House Republicans came together and tentatively agreed on a package that at least would allow them to fund the government. Uh, we're talking about, I think it was an 8% reduction uh, in uh, costs minus uh, defense and veterans. Um, but, you know, this doesn't really change the political perception of we are headed for a shutdown. Mm. We're ascertaining a high percentage, around 70, 75 percent, that the government shuts down. And, you know, this is just something that this is one of the steps of the process that they're going to have to work out over the next few weeks. There's going to be a lot more scary headlines to come. If there is a shutdown, though, we don't think it's going to last long. I mean, look, anything can happen at this point. But you're probably looking at like a five to seven day, even maybe a 10 day shutdown, as opposed to, you know, what we saw under the Trump administration I don't think you're getting anywhere close to the 31-day shutdown that occurred in 20, 2019. All right. If there is a shutdown, I guess the first thing people will try to do is assign blame. Would there be any blame if there were a shutdown? Yeah. You know, I think obviously it's the party that is pushing for the shutdown that ultimately pays the political price here. And, you know, when the Senate agreed or at least agreed to open up debate on their spending package, it was by a vote of 91 to 7. So that's a bipartisan issue over in the Senate. 
it's really uh, the Republicans in the House that are driving this at the moment. But what we would say, though, is that when it comes to a shutdown, the impacts can really differentiate on who you are. If you live in the Washington area or if you are exposed to federal contracting, you know, or if you're a government uh, deemed non-essential employee, you, you may not get paid for during that time. Now, government employees have always been retroactively paid. It's those government contractors that are furloughed that are not. Um, but when it comes to markets and large contractors in terms of their equity share prices and so forth, you usually see like a one or two day worth of confusion in the markets. But then ultimately, there's no, not much of an impact at all. All right. So how about it just as it relates to Washington per se, getting this stuff done, Speaker McCarthy, where are we in his leadership of his party uh, dealing with the various uh, factions there? Because it feels like there's just a relatively small part of the Republican Party that may be looking for a shutdown. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, Speaker McCarthy has an extremely difficult position where he can only afford to lose five votes. You know, we went through this during the debt ceiling and he was able to get the, you know, the, the party through that uh, issue as well. I mean, he's done us quite a bit. And I think to a lot of people in Washington, he's ex exceeded expectations in being able to corral the Republican Party. But now you've got different factions here. You've got the House Freedom Caucus and send, uh, you know, demanding certain cuts. You've got Main Street Caucus may say, look, I'm not going to go along with those cuts or I'm not going to go along with those changes, uh, especially if you're a Republican in a Biden district. But he can only afford to lose five votes. The Democrats aren't really in a position where they're going to want to help him at this. I think eventually they will. But, you know, there is also an impeachment inquiry going on. A lot of Democrats, you know, I think all the Democrats aren't, aren't aren't happy about that. So this is something that Speaker McCarthy is going to have to work through, and he's not going to actually make a decision on how to move forward until that exact moment when he needs to. And that could be a couple of days after the government has shut down. So how is the White House going to play this? Because there is an election coming up, um, and I'm sure the administration doesn't want to be saddled with any kind of blame here or too much blame here. So what are we hearing from the president and from the administration? So I think the White House is in a position of strength going into this because, you know, a lot of this was already agreed upon during the debt ceiling issues. And, you know, these funding levels, especially the vote in the Senate, signifies that there is somewhat bipartisan agreement, at least over in the Senate, uh, that, you know, the funding issue is somewhat resolved. You know, obviously, you know, there's always nuances that have to be hashed out and so forth like that. But I think what you're going to see from the White House is essentially just a, you know, look, this is a congressional issue. This is what Capitol Hill is going to have to deal with. It's the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue. Once the House uh, comes together and actually can figure something out with the Senate, then send it to the president's desk. But I think ultimately the president's going to try and uh, at least initially, you know, stay out of this and let uh, Capitol Hill fight it out. Well, it seems like it, there's a ton of risk here for the Republican Party because it feels just at this stage, uh, as you suggested, that they're the ones kind of pressing for it here. And I'm not, I guess, I guess they hope the calculus is, yeah, but what we're arguing for, less spending and, and the other things they're arguing for, that's really what the people want and they'd be willing to deal with a government shutdown to, to get that. Is that their calculus? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said before, you know, the Speaker McCarthy can only afford to lose five votes. But really what it comes down to is that some of these Republicans that are insisting, look, you've heard language saying that a government shutdown saves money. That's not entirely true. But it plays well in, you know, Peoria, Illinois, or in Alabama, or in Georgia, or in Nevada. And so, you know, a lot of these Republicans, you know, are thinking of their specific constituents here. And so, you know, it's one of those things where eventually they're going to have to work this out, meaning they 
the Speaker McCarthy is going to have to take the, make a decision at a certain point. You know, do I keep the government shut down or do I push for a shutdown or do I try and come up with a bipartisan package? If he moves forward with a bipartisan package, you know, he could see a motion to vacate. You know, he's made, he said language last week. He's like, look, I would welcome a vote, uh, motion to vacate me as Speaker because I think if that would be successful, who would take his place? I'm not exactly sure if there's anybody that would want the job at this point. So, you know, uh, it's just unfortunately we're going to have to go through this every few months or every few years where, you know, there's discussion on whether the government should be shut down. It doesn't save any money. It actually doesn't really help. The last one cost about $3 billion in GDP output, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, but again, these policymakers won't make their decision to come to an bipartisan agreement until their backs are against the wall. And those backs won't be against the wall until they absolutely are, which probably will be, you know, three to five days after a shutdown. Yeah, I don't know how you do this, Nathan. You got to deal with these people all the time and this whole policy all the time. Uh, you're our buffer. You're the guy we, we, we go to. We need to really figure out what's going on down at D.C. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We're talking more cars, dude. Yeah, it's a great day for cars. It is a great day for cars. Well, it's, I mean, let's just say there's a lot of news because there is some, there are some negative stories, okay. right? That the the strike continues to linger on. It's only day four, but you've had some big offers out there. Stellantis, for example, offered a 21 percent increase in wages, and the union just batted that away. Um, you've had, I think, 20% offers from Ford and GM, but they're demanding 36%, plus they want to bring back defined pension benefits, and they're also pushing for a four-day work week. Okay. I'm pushing for a four-day work week. Nobody's listening to me. We have uh, talked to Ola Kalenius today, the CEO of Mercedes, and now we've got Davide Grasso in here, the CEO of Maserati. And, okay, to be fair, obviously, you're part of a much bigger group, Stellantis, and I'm sure you're not dealing with uh, the strike yourself as you're not producing cars, your Maseratis on this side of the Atlantic. But does it have an effect on you indirectly? I mean, do you have supply chain problems if this drags on? Um, how do you see it? Well, um, great question. That, you know, directly, as you said, we don't have issues because we don't produce. It's 100% made in Italy, Maserati. Uh, clearly, uh, we're a global, global, global brand. And uh, you know, for us, in North America is is an important market. So uh, you know, we we look forward to the resolution of this because longer term impacts will be on everybody. I mean, on, on everybody in every sector. So uh, so far, we not we have not been impacted, but the long term ripple effects, you know, could be um, far reaching for everybody. All right, you know, I got the new estate down on the Jersey Shore, right? Yes. Across the street, in the driveway, not one, not two, but three Maseratis. Wow. Is that Does amazing? Joe Walsh live across the street <laughs> I don't from you? Know. Exactly. W.D., yep. talk to us about your business these days. Where are you in terms of your global business and, uh, and in the U.S.? Well, um, global business, we are, we are you know, experiencing a nice growth fueled by the introduction of the new product that we launched over the last um, 18 months, I would say. The Grecale. So, the Grecale, yeah. uh, the SUV, and now we just released the Gran Turismo, which is hitting this market in, in these very weeks. 
And before that, we have the MC20, which um, was uh, represented a little bit the rebirth of the Maserati brand. As you know, Maserati was born on the track. So for us, having <laughs> the MC20 uh, going back from the street to the track, and we had the GT2 program. And then uh, the, recently, we, um, we just um, unveiled the extreme version of MC20, which is called the MC Extrema, uh, <laughs> that we unveiled at Pebble Beach which ah, as, uh, as the beast. <laughs> so, um, you know, all this has generated the, the rebirth and uh, the going back of the brand where it belongs, uh, which is epitomizing Italian luxury. Um, the beautiful thing about the Maserati brand is that, you know, you mentioned three in a, in yep. a right way, because, you know, you can find the Maserati for you. Like, there's a two-seaters, there's a four-seaters Gran Turismo. By the way, Maserati invented the, seg the, the segment of Gran Turismo. It's a trademark word that we, 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 we've had many, 75 years ago, actually. And now uh, everybody who is anybody has a GT car, right? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that all comes back to you. How do you differentiate the GT from the MC20? Because they're both, you know, two-seaters, no. uh, sports cars, right? No, the GT is a four-seater. Oh, the GT is a four. The Gran Turismo is a four-seater. I did not. Yeah. I did not. So, yeah. and it's a so, very so comfortable four-seater. So you're putting that versus a 911, essentially. Uh, yeah, there's different type of competitors to, for the for the for the um, uh, for the Gran Turismo. I tend not to name competition, <laughs> by, by just by you know having worked uh, you know in, in, in previously in, in different uh, environment, including sports. You focus on on, on our game, but it's true. You have uh, four-seaters. As, um, as, as a competitor for the Gran Turismo. Gran Turismo actually was originated 75 years ago by the Maserati um, creativity, if you will, uh, and, and ingenuity, because they basically put um, a coupe, a coupe, but in, uh, you know, with, the, with the spaciousness of, uh, of a sedan. And the drivability of a sport coupe, but with the plush comfort of a sedan. And that created the Gran Turismo. That's so, why, I mean, I don't mean to compare it to a 911. I'm just saying it's it's among those class of cars where you say it's a four seater, but we're not putting a couple of adults in the back, right? I mean, no, no. You, I'll be happy to drive you around, and you sit in the back, <laughs> and you'll tell me how you feel after two hours drive to the Hamptons. Wow, look at that. That's a great offer. He's taking well, the Hamptons. He's going to drive me to the Hamptons. <laughs> and he's going to drop. I off. have uh, driven the um, uh, the Gricali and mm -hmm. the Trofeo. I have the Trofeo version. Which is, okay. I think, starts at 103, 103 grand. Um, amazing car. And for me, it was kind of a life changing experience because I had previously shunned V6s. Really? But this power plant was everything in that car to me. Um, and it's, I think, derived from the MC20, right? It is. It is, yeah. And the MC20 is powered by the Nettuno engine, which is, again, made in Maserati. Again, Nettuno is from King Neptune, by the way. Yeah. You know, he he carried the Trident. Trident. Hence yeah. their, you know. Yep. Okay. Oh, the yeah. Maserati. Yeah. It's all, it, all okay. it, all it all comes together. It all comes together. together. <laughs> Thank you. Davide, who is your customer in, in, is there a typical customer or is it different in Europe versus North America versus maybe Asia? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, we, again, as we repositioned the brand and we started the, so the results we are, we are, we're getting, and, and North America is on the forefront of this growth, because it's a critical market for us, where historically we had a great position, and now we're actually enjoying that history, but with new product and new uh, growth spurt. So, um, you know, we uh, refocus the brand on its values, which are, you know, it's Italian luxury and performance. Yeah. So we're focusing on the new luxury consumer, which is by nature global. So the mindset of the consumer is similar. 
the lifestyle of the aspirations, the type of activities are similar. So uh, there's many more um, uh, similarities between uh, New York and Shanghai and London modern luxury customer uh, than, than, than differences, right? And then there, of course, there's different regulations, different uh, urban or suburban type of situations. But that's what is actually giving us um, the, 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 the confidence that this um, growth path we're on is going to be a long-term growth. That's it. definitely it's, uh, it's our intention and our plans. Uh, we're a growth company. The other thing is the global luxury consumer is not looking anymore just for super sports cars or just for Gran Turismo, but they have a lifestyle for which they may need a medium-sized SUV. But, you know, just like you were saying, is, um, you know, you have certain needs or desire in terms of the, the responsiveness of the engine or the type of luxury experience you have as a driver or as passenger, not only in terms of materials, but also in terms of the digital interaction that you have with the car. So we put a lot of efforts also and focus on uh, the digital driving experience. So this is a whole new generation, essentially, Com of Completely Maserati's. new, completely new. Um, how do you you're you're trading within Stellantis? They own uh, Maserati, but um, you should be trading at a much higher valuation. That is, they should be getting a lot more value for Maserati than they do inside the company, mm -hmm. and they break out um, mm -hmm. investment banker now trying to your financials. Do a here. <laughs> they break out your financials, and they don't break out Stellantis doesn't break out all of their brands' financials, mm -hmm. but they do for Maserati. Mm -hmm. If you do well, do you see an IPO in your future? It's a question that it's a great question. It's a question that's been asked uh, several times. I'm hoping to, you'll give me a different answer. <laughs> to, yeah. uh, no, I, you know, to, to me, uh, to uh, uh, CFO and, uh, and to Carlos and uh, Carlos Tavares, our CEO, group CEO. And the kind of answer is like, right now, it's not in the cards. Right now, the cards, we are focusing totally in, in, in really capturing the growth potential long term that Maserati has in order to deliver the high demands that a global customer, uh, global customer, um, luxury customer has. And we're focused on that. We're very pleased about the journey we've had. Four years ago, we were in a very different um, you know, situation as a brand, as a business, but we still have a long ways to go. So how, how much can you grow? I mean, aren't you limited to some extent by uh, unit sales? Isn't there a ceiling at, as far as how many you can actually sell? It's a great question because it allows me to shift, to build on what you were saying. And um, when, you, when you work in luxury, the focus is not on volume. If you want to be healthy and delivering to the customer needs over the long term, you have to focus on, on, on profit. Without, and, and on quality, of course. So without quality, these are the two fundamental elements of our plan. Uh, without quality, you, you don't have luxury. You know, quality brands, luxury brands, even in other fields, you know, normally are like 100 years old, and they were born as a high-quality brand, right? And over time, you become luxury because you are very steady in delivering luxury. The other thing you need to do is you need to have your, your added value recognized by the customer in pricing, right? So we put a lot of effort in that and rebalancing and redefining our business model, and we have now a 92 uh, percent um, AOI adjusted operating uh, and, 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 and margin and you know our goal is there's no need no there's no reason why we shouldn't be at 15 percent first which is like benchmark and, and above 15 percent so that's what we're looking at and the volume then is um, you know could be a really um, dangerous trap to fall in in, in, in in the mindset oh I need to sell more 
I need to sell better. We don't want to be much bigger, but we want to be recognized as the best in terms of uh, you know um, Italian luxury. Real quick, quickly, 30 seconds on your evolution to going uh, electric. Where are you guys? Uh, we're almost ready to actually have Maserati cars, okay. um, electric cars uh, driven in the roads. You know, by the now and the end of the year, we're going to uh, introduce, in, you know, launch the Grecale electric, and the electric version is Folgore. Folgore, going back to mythology, means lightning. And Folgore is, uh, you know, is, is uh, the Maserati, the name that identifies Maserati uh, electric. And then we also have the Gran Turismo electric. All right, um, the, ne the next time we get you in, I want to figure out how you went from the sneaker business mm -hmm. to the luxury automobile he business. He went. And before then, let's get you in a Maserati. Yeah, you have then to we'll get me drive in a the product before you interview the CEO next yeah, time. Yeah, next time. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll do that next time. Davide Grasso, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, CEO of Maserati, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's been a great card day for you, Matt. Yeah, I I've mean, been enjoying it. Yeah, we got it. It's just, I mean, you, you drive everything that's out there on the road. You might as well. Well, I and haven't I, driven the GT yet. I got to drive the GT. Okay, we'll get you, get you behind. I think we. And know we didn't I, do the Joe Walsh joke. We have you ha have you heard the Joe Walsh song? Life's been good to me so far. No. He says my Maserati <laughs> does one eighty five. You must know that. It's a rock star. Yes, you do yeah. know that. Okay, okay, good. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Kevin Tyner joins us, senior automotive analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Hey, Kevin, I, you know, I'm thinking about this strike here. And, you know, as a Wall Street guy, I'm usually kind of pro-business. But, boy, the, the, the auto workers got some good points here. I mean, they gave up, it seems like, a lot um, during the great financial crisis and then the pandemic they came in. Um, from the automaker's perspective, what can they really afford? Well, look, I, I think the issue for the union is that, look, we've seen you make a lot of money uh, over the past, since, really since that period, since the bankruptcy period, 2008, 2009, even into 2010. And they, they can't hide that. The manufacturers can't hide that. Um, I think what they're gonna try and get out of these negotiations, the manufacturers that is, is that flexibility uh, to adjust capacity and headcount going forward because even though they've made more money, the production, especially in North America and U.S. specifically, is down significantly. So the idea that the manufacturers kind of pay up for their earnings through these contract negotiations um, also has to include the idea that, hey, if we move to a smaller market, which is what has happened, and especially if electrification means fewer unit, unit sales, um, as that volume declines, you have to have that flexibility to take out headcount or production capacity going forward. So there is a pretty big bid-ass spread here. I mean, I, you know, the I guess the auto companies are talking about a 21% increase, and I think the uh, the last uh, proposal from the unions were something like 36%. If you had to guess, I mean, do, do we just do a simple split the difference, or is there a level upon which when you these big folks in Detroit look at Elon Musk and say, I can't compete at 36% increase. <laughs> yeah, that, it is going to be difficult. But again, if there, that flexibility there is 
to adjust to a market that is, you know, 15 million unit million units a year going forward, but at $52,000 in an average transaction price, the revenue pool is actually larger, even though the unit volume is down. So I think what you're going to see is the ability to pay up. You know, so if I had a bet, I would say that the likelihood is that the union gets closer to their number really? than what the manufacturer uh, is, is willing to give. But again, that flexibility on the other side to say, yeah, if this is a 15 and 15 to 16 million unit market go going forward where we're used to 17 plus, you know, then we have to have the ability to close plants, uh, take out some headcount and adjust to the market going forward. I mean, maybe they'll be able to give a huge raise in wages as cover for getting that kind of flexibility from the UAW. Because, um, you know, you hear numbers like 20 percent and you think that's probably going to break these automakers. But it's not because people don't realize how small a percentage of the cost labor actually is, right? Right. And, and again, that 20 percent or 40 percent or whatever it ends up being is over the four years of the contract so it's not immediately all at once um, you know the other one is going to be the signing bonus for ratifying the deal which would which would be a nice number um, but really that's what the manufacturers have to give is to give back some of that profitability they've earned over really the past decade or since the the, the you know the bankruptcy period and that's what they're going to be able to do uh, but ultimately, the idea of having too many workers or pensions and legacy costs going forward, that's where the manufacturers, that's where it would hurt them, not so much in the hourly uh, increase in the wage going forward, because you can, you can cut costs, right? You can, you can increase revenue, you know, which, is, which is what's happening as mix shifts to truck from car or to electric from internal combustion. Um, but you have to have the ability to right-size your business going forward. So do you think, I, I guess just the question, I think I would guess if I were uh, an investor considering, you know, any one of these auto companies is just, do I think these companies can generate better, worse, or the same returns in an electrified world versus internal com combustion world? Do, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I mean, so far it looks like worse. Yep. Um, and I think what we're starting to see is a little bit of pushback on that. You know, and I've been saying this for years is that the U.S. is behind in EV adoption, not because the consumer does or doesn't want it or it's expensive. Or it's just not as profitable as the business that that the manufacturers have been doing f forever, which is an internal combustion. So the but idea even that even if they get, uh, you know, if they get the development costs behind them and I mean, Tesla is running 18% margins, right? So they're super profitable. Yeah, but you're talking about regulatory credit sales. You're talking about deferred revenue from full self-driving, right? And when you look at their gross margins or you know operating margins, even you know they're not as profitable as they're not the most profitable in terms of margin of all the automakers either, right? They're kind of middle of the pack when you adjust everybody onto the level playing field. You know, so, so the idea is that, you know, you've had things over the years, right? The mix shift to truck from car, which I've been talking about for 10 years, that's profitable on day one, right? And that's why that shift has happened. Now what you're looking for is when does this get profitable? Now, I've been saying, if you look at software and subscription and services, that's profitable on day one. 
And I think that's going to be your profit bridge going forward until the when if EV is as, as profitable as internal combustion. And I think that's why you're starting to see a little bit of a hedge in terms of why don't plug-in hybrids make more sense these days. And now we're starting to see some of that come into the market. Toyota Lexus has been talking about it for a long time. Um, you know, and, and even consumers I talk to are asking me, like, why isn't that more of a thing? We don't have to worry about charging infrastructure. We don't have as high a cost as a consumer. Um, so I think the market's kind of taking a step back from, from the singularity of either internal combustion or full battery like electric that. to the like steps in between. Fan. So, but Kevin, I, I know you're, you know, as big or bigger car geek than, than Matt Miller here. Can you tell me, what is the demand out there, the real demand out there for EVs? Do people want them or do people feel like they're kind of being pushed upon them? I think shoved down their throat is yes. a good way to put it. <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, I, I, I go a lot of places and I talk to a lot of people, you know, <laughs> and especially at the dealership level. And I have dealerships come to me all the time at these you know, I'll speak at a convention and, and I have people, and I talk about the, you know, the average transaction price relative to internal combustion. I have people, you know, from the middle of the country come to me and say, look, my dealership is in, is in an area where, you know, household income just can't afford $50,000, never mind sixty, $65,000 for, for an EV. So what, what are our people supposed to do? So I think there is a little bit of that, but you know, look, I'm one that says, the consumer will go where the manufacturers need them to go because they're the ones producing the vehicles, right? If, if we had manufacturers who didn't care about profitability or um, you know, thought that the idea was to move to electric, even if it were unprofitable, you know, that's what consumers would get. So right now in this country, if, if the government isn't penalizing the manufacturers or subsidizing them, and it falls to where profitability is best, that's what automakers are chasing right now. So from the consumer's perspective, it almost doesn't matter what they want or what they prefer. They can't buy what a manufacturer doesn't build, and a manufacturer is not building what's not profitable. I gotta, I'm gonna go somewhere else real quick. Go. So I had a truck that had some problems and uh, had, there was a catastrophic event, not of my doing, right? <laughs> and a dealer friend of mine said, ah, oh, you got a Monday truck. I said, what's that? He said, well, it's probably built on a Monday when everybody came in hungover and wasn't paying as much attention. <laughs> now, I push back a little and I say, I've met a lot of people on production lines at many different brands, and they tend to be responsible adults, professionals who take pride in their work. So I don't really buy that as much. But I just got my Challenger built. I just got an email. Nice. My uh, Dodge Challenger RT Scat Pack wide body and Fate Green <laughs> has been built up in Canada and I put it on, I'm so excited to put it on the uh, Challenger forum and they said, man, you don't want to buy a car around these strikes. Everybody's in a bad mood. <laughs> you maybe they're knocking back some beers before work. What Do you buy any of that kind of mythology around the wrong uh, time to buy a car or get a car built? I, you know, look, I would say there was a period through the pandemic. I, my son and I, who's a, he's also a big car guy, we talk about that like we wouldn't buy a 2020 model a year or, <laughs> You know, and I'm not, and, and look, the whole uh, chip shortage thing, not that it wasn't real, uh, but you know, look, there, were, there was issues where vehicles had to be decontented because you just didn't have the chips, right? Or, 
you know, features or options were just lower just because you're putting, if there is a finite amount of chips, you're putting them in your high-end vehicles, um, you know, and then some content gets left off of everything else in the portfolio. So I think there's more that than the actual worker saying, you know, it's Monday, I don't feel like doing this well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's periods. Look, and, and I think the other one to, to note is, you know, I started talking about bankruptcy being inevitable yep. in 2005. You know, so automakers see that now investment kind of stops, right? right? You get in defensive, like let's save some cash. So, you know, for me that period right. Um, from 05 into through the bankruptcy right. is, you know, there That's wasn't a, a lot of good investment happening. All right, Kevin, thanks as always. Kevin Tynan, Senior Automotive Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.